Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and we are going to talk about a really, really big topic. This is a big topic. It's on a big place, and it's a topic that we haven't really dealt with on our podcast before. And we're going to talk about China. So I have Jason Scheftel on. He is an author and podcaster with a background in international development, law, and economics. He has spent often on trips to China for about nine years, and he is working on an upcoming book. And Jason, I really appreciate you coming on. Hey, Doug, glad to be on here. So you have a podcast right now called China Unraveled, which I've listened to, and I recommend our listeners listen to as well. And for one of the reasons we'll get into why in a little bit is that you do a longer view of history on China to set the stage and the context for what's going on right now, not only like right now with, you know, the pandemic and the origin being in the Wuhan province of China, but also global trade and some other aspects of China as well. But let's talk a little bit about what got you into understanding and really comprehending what's going on with and in China. Sure. Yeah, I've been, so I first went to China about nine years ago, but I've, I've been interested in the country for at least, at least 15 years. I think, I think part of it sort of gestated when the U.S. was really getting into all these wars in the Middle East. And in the background, we had this whole economic shift that was going on with uh, global industry. And there's sort of this large state, China, in the background. And in my mind, I was just wondering, was, is there going to be another large conflict? What's, what's happened? Where are things going? You know, since then, I've taken a long journey to kind of find out the way things may end up. Hmm. So what took you to go to China? Like, what were some starting points there? Where did I go or what brought me? Well, what was the reason for some of your trips? And, mm. you know, was it just business? Was it pleasure, mixture of both? And what did you learn there? Sure. First time was uh, sheer curiosity, almost like it just had a gripping need to go. I landed first in Hong Kong, I think like a lot of people, and went pretty substantially through the southern China. And then in 20, yeah, a couple of years later in 2013, I got a scholarship actually to study in China. And I was at uh, Peking or Beijing University studying demography, transportation, agriculture, sort of broad broad systems there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's that's kind of the the trend that brought me there and I learned I learned a lot just even listening to that university and another one are really two of the most prominent in China and just listening to what the students and what the professors were worried about. It really gave me a very different perspective on how things were seen from the from the inside out as opposed to our perspective from the outside in. Do you have any examples of that? Like what did sure. you hear on the ground? I think one one that was just completely astonishing was just the degree to which the Chinese government was worried about food production. I remember seeing maps, you know, PowerPoint images of where, where food production was located in China, you know, the totals, the volumes of grain. And it was such a prominent topic. I remember thinking, in the United States, we never even think about this. And it's really, it's true because in the United States, the continental United States has never experienced a famine. Whereas in Chinese history, you average, you know, maybe one famine, two famines every three years, going as far back as anyone can remember. 
and increasing since maybe the last thousand years. So it's mm. just a very different, um, yeah. yeah, it's a very different thing than I, I expected. So I was sitting in class expecting to, you know, listen about technology and how, where things are going. And they're like, wait, we first got to talk about agriculture because <laughs> it's a big worry. <laughs> okay. So my first thought here is like, I'm picturing, <laughs> I'm picturing a classroom, you're learning this and so forth. And I'm just like, I would want to raise my hand and be like, do you know that we don't have to worry about this in most of the rest of the world? Yeah. And, and kind of asking, like, did you ever get to ask that question? Or do you think they have this sense? Like, in a joking way, it's sort of like Jerry Seinfeld's like, you know, why do the Chinese use chopsticks? Like, they've seen the fork, they've seen the spoon. Why are they still doing that? You know, <laughs> it's like, we've seen an improvement. We've had, we have markets that help us with agricultural development and where does our food production come from, right? And so they've seen that. So what's the answer to, to don't they know about this? Well, in China, it's it's a complicated question. In the, you know, in, in the 1970s, China experienced the wor- history's worst famine. A lot of it was self-induced, but there were also sort of major challenges it was dealing with. And it's a different, you know, agriculture, it's, it's sort of forgotten in a lot of economics, agricultural economics and, and sort of that early developmental track, especially in the United States, it gets forgotten. But it's very different and it depends on each country. Sort of the, the layout of the land, the climate, all of that really affects how and where things can be grown and in what volumes and with what levels of labor participation. Hmm. So one of the things people don't realize is China produces about, about as much food as the United States, but it does it with a population of farmers equal to the entire United States. So they have over 300 million farmers to produce the same output which is wow. really shocking to almost anyone who hears it. Has that declined in the last couple of decades or has it remained steady? It has, output is, has, uh, has gone up a lot and the, the agriculture labor force has gone down also. And that's actually where a lot of the early industrial workers came from. They fled mm. the fields. That agricultural transition is a huge, huge part of China's development over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. It's gone down, but essentially all of Chinese agriculture output, the increase comes from increased use of inputs and particularly fertilizers and industrial agro inputs. And that has major consequences when you do it for long enough. So before we jump into some of the topics in your podcast, because I want to talk some specific history with you, I can imagine people wonder where you're coming from. You know, China is kind of a hot topic, not just because it's 2020, but it's kind of been that way in geopolitical conversation. If anybody cares about what, you know, the United States is up to in the world and what other countries are doing, China is a big presence in that. And a lot of people, you know, you, you can hear pundits on, you know, Fox News or MSNBC or CNN taking this side and that side and how China is a threat and how China is not a threat or whatever the case may be. And so I think sometimes people need some analytical tools to help us understand what's happening. And so what are the tools that you use? Like, where do you where do you come at from this? Sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, you definitely need tools and a couple are really essential uh, so what I use a lot of is a lot of economics, but a lot of it is basic, I guess, developmental economics, labor and agricultural. It's easily forgotten that there's a really a developmental trajectory to most countries. Mm-hmm. And there is sort of a prototype, a sort of normal way that it happens or an ideal way that it happens. And, and then ones that are a little bit more divergent. And I think geography is a huge one that, that is really, really just not not considered enough, especially just 
in economics, for example, since the 90s, there's been a bit of a debate between whether it's institutions or geography that originate many of a lot of the diversity that we see in different countries. But when you take the long, a long enough perspective, there were no institutions. So in my book, it goes back to when there, there is no China. And the, the only thing you really have is geography. But so I would say mm-hmm. geography, um, I also personally have a bit of a legal background and I did a lot of land use development, a lot of federal institutional and comparative law. So it looks at the comparative of what emerges at, at sort of the institutional level. I think demography is very important. Um, so anyone looking at China in particular with the one child policy and then the general aging of global industrialized economies and their interrelation when we're thinking about international trade and where it will go in the future, that's very important for consumption and, and production patterns. And then, you know, military, which a lot of China's history is the result of military failures or military challenges that couldn't be overcome. So that also gets in with certain technological, sort of the changing technology of the day. So, mm-hmm. I, well, you know, the, in the 19th century, they call it the century of humiliation. And it's really just, a lot of that just comes from the complete just disparity between the military technology of, of the West and China at the time. Mm. Uh, and then the last one, I think there's, I actually have a, a bit in link, sort of a lot of psychology and linguistics. This relates to sort of the, the very ancient Chinese history when, you know, it's sort of a language, China is a language like English or even ancient Greek, where the Greek you speak today is not ancient Greek. Mm-hmm. You know, Middle English is not English. And then if you really want to get the full sweep of things, you need a bit of a, a sense of, of psychology and language and how that works. And then finally, just as I've been making more content for people to try and give them a window into this, I've been looking a lot more at the art to try and give people a sense of, of how things were just in a more visual form. But those are early ones of economics, geography, right. demography, technology. Those are really the ways that, that I try and approach it. And then just history. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at enough at history and you see the patterns, um, you, can get, you can get somewhere. Yeah, it, it rhymes, right? And that was not yeah. Mark Twain quote. I think so. Yeah. It rhymes. <laughs> but yeah, so like I said earlier, one of the things that you do well in your podcast is that you don't just start in, say, the 90s when manufacturing, the manufacturing boom, or 80s and 80s and 90s when the manufacturing boom started in China, or at least that's when Americans sort of noticed and things started getting, quote unquote, shipped to China. Right. And so your your history starts much earlier. Can you give us one? I mean, you kind of already explained why and to some extent, like you need to learn a long history, but where does this actually start in terms of America's relationship to China and China on a global scale? Hmm. Well, so America's relationship to China starts pretty soon after the United States was founded. But in the 19th century, a lot of international trade was sort of the prime mover was Britain. Mm-hmm. And so Britain actually in the Opium Wars, it was acting, you know, it's obviously a very, a big moral stain and all it's a, all the stuff about opium in the opium wars is, is very true. But it was also a stand-in for larger attempts to open up the Chinese economy in general to trade. And, you know, I actually have a two-part series about Hong Kong coming out that goes back to the early formation of China and what Hong Kong played in it. I bring it up just because what happens with trade is is really intimately linked with these, these treaty ports and what China needs to do to maintain its own unity and what the West wanted to do to gain access to Chinese markets and Chinese inputs. Because a lot of the world that we live in for the last 500 years is based off of a large base, sorry, a <laughs> base effect growth, I guess you could say, where the number of continents and people and populations coming online and new products and new resources has really propelled a lot of growth. And 
the U.S.-China relationship and really international trade in general after 1945 is, is sort of the end stage of that 500-year journey we've been on, where mm-hmm. some countries yeah. sort of led the the charge and others suffered a bit but also gained. Yeah. It feels like China is becoming like a global superpower, you know, very similar to the United States, which is partly why some people are a little fearful of that. Have they been the superpower in the, in history at all? Like, have they been the hub in the past? I mean, there's the Roman Empire. Has, In my mind, the history of the West is just kind of what my frame of reference is for things. And so, I, I don't know, what's what about the East? That's a really, that's a very good question. And I'd say one thing people should keep in mind is that about 1500 before the European empires really started going global, there wasn't really a global empire. Mm-hmm. Almost everything was regional. So Rome was a regional empire in the Mediterranean and then in Europe, basically the Mediterranean. China was at times the, the dominant pole in, in East Asia. But I'd strongly advise against talking about global empires. There's sort of a turn in, in history research, history scholarship around the 1990s to knit together world history. And, you know, there's a lot to that. But for example, the Silk Road, which is, I mean, it's it's almost unbearable, the homages that China makes to the Silk Road and, and everyone does these days. But the Silk Road was for, you know, very low mass, high value products. And it was a very long, circuitous route. And it was ne- never really what people imagined it to be until after the Mongol conquests in the 1200s. And by that point, maritime commerce had already really usurped it and, and taken a more prominent role. So there's, so looking, I guess, looking at old empires as regional is actually a better way to start. If you want to sort mm-hmm. of link them together afterwards, that's valuable. But China was, I guess the way to say it is that China has been very powerful, but it's very hard for us to get a accurate perspective on it because we look at the world today in particular with the U.S. and then the British before, where the U.S. goes and wages wars all across the world. It goes and invades Iraq, and it seems to have no logistical problem at all to do that for decades or Afghanistan. And that sort of thing is very, very new and never occurred in Chinese history. The only time China ever really reached out beyond Korea, Vietnam, some places in Central Asia, was for a a bit of a vanity cruise in the early Ming Dynasty. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting observation. You're saying that China hasn't been able to carry out large-scale or long-term military conquests in the way that we're familiar with seeing today. Correct. Is that that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, what do you think explains that? Well, one thing people don't realize is that China's, one of the big divergences in China right now is between its coast and its, well, the rest of it, the interior of China. Mm -hmm. But China's coast actually breaks down into at least three regions. And northern China, sort of the North China Plain, where Beijing and most of Chinese most of the Chinese empires have been located, that coastline is muddy and marshy and swampy, and it's it doesn't have ports. The only time it really has ports has had ports historically was for like ritual invasions of Korea, where it required massive amounts of capital to create these ports, but there was no maritime economy to sustain mm. it afterwards. So it was always you know swallowed up by the sea, basically. So that's one of the reasons where China's never been a maritime power because its power base is in the north, most often historically. And that region doesn't have really a naval capacity or a maritime orientation. Mm-hmm. The region that does is more Shanghai and the Yangtze down to Hong Kong. But the relationship between those regions and the rest of China is not exactly easy. Um, there's a reason that Taiwan, Macau, Hong Kong, and these places are currently 
not entirely inf- affiliated with China. It's a historical fact as well. It's happened multiple times. So I want to start talking about the myths about China. Before I do that, I, this, this sort of came to mind. I remember being in a bookstore and I saw a book and it had, the title of the book was like a year in the 1400s and it had to do with the founding of America and how there were Chinese settlers in the United States. Do you know anything about that period of history where Chinese immigrants, I don't even call them immigrants, I guess they're immigrants uh, in that regard, came to what we now know as the United States, our land? So waves of Chinese people have been fleeing China, particularly southern China, the part I just described, for at least a thousand years since about the Song Dynasty. But getting to America is a bit of a stretch. I mean, like physically, it's a bit of a stretch, right? It is, it is a bit of a stretch, and it would not have been at, there's no way it was a sort of state-driven operation. So it's most mm-hmm. likely, if it, if it did happen, it was either refugees, pirates, or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. It's another thing I discussed in the, in the Hong Kong episode where the relationship between southern and northern China has produced pirates, merchants, refugees, and just waves of them for hundreds of years. That's why there are so many Chinese in Southeast Asia. And that's why they populated Singapore as well as Hong Kong. But okay. getting, getting, to, getting to the United States, I, I've read something similar. There's also stuff about how the Vikings made it to the United States, and I believe that more, yeah. You mean on a large scale? On a large scale. I, anyone could. On a large scale. Some very, very intrepid and strong people could definitely do it. But <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, the Vikings, they have that persona, at least in our historical imagination. <laughs> yeah, but, and, but the, the Vikings made it all the way down to Constantinople at times. They, they really were yeah. a, a maritime, you know, a raiding civilization, which is, I think it's, you know, it's very interesting, but definitely not, yeah. <laughs> not what... China had. Japan might have been more likely. Actually, mm, okay. based on your earlier question, that's another part. China, it's been hard for China to reach out and touch other parts of the world because it's really paralleled by a whole string of islands. And that has really limited its ability to maneuver freely. It's one thing in the United okay. States, our coasts are clear. It's a yeah, big difference. Yeah. Well, what about by land? I mean, there's Russia and Mongolia and the whatever, I don't know how to describe the country, Kazakhstan, that, mm-hmm. those areas as well. And I realize that those borders weren't always in those spots. But like, what about what about movement west for them? Sure, yeah. So there's the, the Gobi Desert. You, Gobi Desert um, you don't really go very far north. China never really bothered. It didn't even take over Manchuria until very, very late. In fact, by Manchurians took over China and therefore China got Manchuria. But to go uh, okay. west... The farthest China has gone is probably the Fergana Valley. It's just in modern Uzbekistan. There's actually a very ancient and famous war about that because China actually lacked quality horses for a a variety of reasons. And that made it extremely vulnerable to all the the nomadic raiding and herding and societies Mm -hmm. that that sort of roamed the the steppe. But yeah, beyond the Fergana, Fergana Valley is about as far as it ever went. Um, and that's, I think it's 3,000, 4,000 miles. It's, it's extremely far and it requires, you're, you're connecting a string of oasis cities and you're in a completely different place. Yeah. <laughs> they okay. never, you can't maintain that. All the times, this is actually something people might find interesting. Anytime you see an ancient picture of China and there's, it's a picture of the old empire and there's a big long thread pulling to the West, it very rarely ever kept that for more than a few decades. Okay. It was a military protectorship, uh, dictatorship sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So let's shift to the myths about China. Tell, (laughs) 
I was just going to say, shock us. What do, what do we think we know about China that we really don't? Give us a few of those to start. Because I want to whet people's appetite for your podcast as well. Yeah, sure. I think one, one that I've been thinking about recently is that you hear this phrase, 5,000 years of history all the time. It's sort of one of the, you know, pe- people may not have heard this as much, but you go anywhere in China, they say, oh, we have 5,000 years of history. But you look right. at history and it's very weird because China maybe has a lot more than 5,000 years of history or a lot less, but it does 5,000 itself is not what it has. And it's it's funny, that term almost certainly comes from like a cultural quirk where the phrase 10,000 is really evocative and symbolic. It means like the great man, many, many things. It means like something like that. And it's almost the government is trying to say, oh, we've had 5,000 years of history and under the party, you will get another 5,000. Or those early mm-hmm. nationalists said the same thing. But yeah, it's probably about 3,500 years. And then even then, the early parts of Chinese history are not like what anyone's been told. So that's part of it. I guess what you mentioned earlier, just, uh, you know, ancient wealth and power, like was it, was China a, you know, superpower? I think a lot of people are pushed or led in the wrong direction by, a lot of it comes from this guy, Angus Madison at the OECD, who did a lot of development economics. And he, he did these old GDP charts you see where it shows, oh, China and India had, each of them had like a third of global GDP. It's like, well, no. That, you know, this is, it's based on agricultural output. So it just says, oh, you know, more agricultural output, more GDP, but really it's just directly tied to the population and all that output gets consumed. And most people in, you know, most, it's a, there's a good reason that Chinese farmers were called peasants. The life was really brutal, really brutal. Mm-hmm. So when people are thinking of ancient power and these beautiful buildings and all that, remember 90, 95 plus percent of the population was barely getting by. Yeah. So that's that's definitely one I'd, I'd, I'd throw in there. And also just China has not had a peaceful history. It's very easy to look at Chinese history and think, oh, like there's this one dynasty and then there was another dynasty and it's kind of all neat and linear. And, you know, now we're at, you know, the recent modern government. It's like, no, there were huge <laughs> periods of chaos. Like there are internal wars in China like that are larger than a lot of, you know, the big ones that we hear about in the West. Uh, so that's that's definitely something to keep in mind. Like extremely violent, yeah, extremely violent, yeah. Well, think, thinking about the internal stuff, I wanted to ask this. This might be a good time to bring it up. In the United States and around the world, we for I don't know February and March until it hit the rest of the world with the coronavirus, we were like, oh, it's happening in the Wuhan province of China. So we look at a map and we see the little division lines, yeah, and we see oh Wuhan province and there's this one city. I don't remember the name of the city. And, you know, the New York Times did their whole little animated thing where it's like, oh, well, then it spread. And, you know, you see this animation happen and it spread to this city and to that city during the Chinese New Year season. And in our brains, at least for me, maybe I can't speak for everybody, but I'm, I'm assuming to some extent that this is everyone's experience. It's like the equivalent of saying, oh, well, it started in New York and then it went to Chicago and then it went to this place and then it went to that place because we think of these as different states, right? My guess is, because you just explained all the history not being so linear, that these provinces aren't necessarily the equivalent of states. Oh, no. These states were actually crafted a bit to cover up the actual layout of the different Chinese, you can call them subpopulations. So Mm -hmm. the the specific region- You say crafted, you mean recently during this crisis? No, I mean under under the Communist Party in general. It's very worried about regionalism. So it's okay. effort to create a unitary state. It actually created lines similar to what the Soviet Union did a bit. Well, the Soviet, sorry, Stalin did in the Soviet Union to create all these stands that don't really 
totally cover the ethnic groups and stuff like that. There's similar mm-hmm. things going on. So these provinces, they're not always what you want to look at when you're thinking what the actual people who make it up are, are like. Okay. Okay. So how does that, I mean, is this, I don't know how, how deep you want to go into explaining that. Could you give us a picture of like, what is the communist party trying to do by doing that? Like they're, they're trying to make it unified. I know, but like, what are some of the techniques or I don't know, logistical situations there? Yeah, well, so, I mean, one great example is the, there's a province called Sichuan, which is everyone knows just because of Sichuan, like the food, the spicy food that we get in the U.S. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's right. funny, there are some things that when you hear, as I learn more, I learned that a lot of things that we happen to know about have a bit of a, there's a good reason we know about them. For for some reason, it ends up being very important. And that region is the most popula- populous region in China. It's an internal region that has its own self-sufficiencies in a lot of way in a lot of ways, which others don't, which makes it a bit restive, a bit of a threat to political control. So China just Mm -hmm. split it. It took the eastern part and made it a national level province, the city of uh, Chongqing. And yeah, they just split it because it was too, it was too populous. They just split it. So it's, there's stuff like that. So what did that do for the party? I mean, what's the benefit? I mean, again, as an American, I don't really understand what that looks like other than like, you know, hey, we're just going to make a new border and now we have an additional state or province. But like, what does that do practically? I mean, it's not like, I mean, are they, this is going to show my ignorance here. They don't vote, do they? No. And yeah, no, they don't. So it's vote. not like red line. I mean, it's redlining in a completely different definition. <laughs> it, but it, it's is, <laughs> it is. It is a very old school version of redlining before representative government, I guess you could say. Right, right. A lot of it is just based off of preventing the formation of regional power bases. That's a really good way to think about it. And this, this goes back 3,000 years at least. And it's just, so this happens also with communist officials. They're all sent to different provinces. They're sent here. Uh-huh. They're taken away from their home province. They're, they're sent all over. This is what was, this has been done forever and for the administrative class. The goal is just to prevent them from creating a whole clique that has economic, political, and social authority in the region that could you know that could challenge the and government they have, in some way. Do yeah. they have like regional military power assigned to them? Like, hey, if you have an uprising, we're gonna we'll we'll back you up with firepower. No, there's not really a national guard sort of thing. the The PLA has its theater divisions. It has division. They're actually changing them in the last couple of years, but it's a national level control of military assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's no. It's more, okay. and it's also there's a lot of internal. Again, like the Communist Party has its own version of politics, and a lot of it is to weaken your enemies, to purge them, to banish them, to cut off their patronage networks and stuff like that. It's it's a whole thing, but. Yeah, but at yeah. a deeper level, to prevent the consolidation of regions that have historically been, you know, somewhat independent or s- somewhat self-compartmentalized is, is a constant goal of the party. Is one analogy to be, like, every now and then people talk about how powerful Texas is as an economy in the United States. Would this be sort of the equivalent of like people in Texas constantly becoming a threat to D.C.? And is it anything like that at all? where there's this like risk of populist groups in our country rising up. I realize that it doesn't actually exist. I mean, I know there's threats and there's small factions here and there, but like, would it be the equivalent of like, you know, people from Texas always wanting to rise up against their government and not really being able to do so because of bigger redlining? Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually a good way to think about it in some ways. Often like, for example, like a good way to think about an empire and like what makes an empire when people are talking about, Oh, is the U S an empire? Are we an empire? A good way to think about it is how do the different parts relate to the center? So in the United States, from an economic perspective, Texas, the West, the Southeast, the Northeast, 
they all have about equal populations and mm-hmm. economic, you know, uh, economies. In China, mm-hmm. it's very different. And so in, in the U.S., it's actually developed organically. So people move to Texas, people move to California, they have different compositions, but no one was forced anyway. There wasn't any like central authority trying right. to shift this structure. And then also, although it's kind of happened now that Washington, there's a lot of the, the really wealthy zip codes are all in a, around D.C. now in the last yep, 20 years. Yep. So that is actually something people should think about. That is more a sign that you know the center is sort of gaining authority, but it's really not on the level of somewhere like China, where China for the last 3,000 years has had to specifically contort the natural development patterns of the region to fit a political unitary state to cover all of it. So like you're asking, so the Yangtze region, where the Yangtze Delta region, where Shanghai is, would be a much, much larger economic unit if things had Mm -hmm. been allowed to develop organically. And yeah, there's similar things like that where money is channeled and shipped in different ways. And it's been going on for a long time. So it's not really a natural structure in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So all of the all of the details or many of the details of what can be filled in between our conversation here, I would recommend our listeners could listen to your podcast. Your episodes are not super long, so they're they're great to listen to and they're not hard to follow. So I'm gonna plug your podcast here for a second. Go listen to that to get the details. But what I wanna jump to next is 2020. There's plenty to talk about, of yeah. course. And I think it's not a secret that there is a debate over whether or not China gave us good numbers over the COVID infection rate and how it spread and whether or not it's even being contained right now. And there's a lot of distrust about whether we got good numbers from China. We don't need to particularly talk about Trump, but people blame Trump for not acting sooner. And other people were like, well, they told him everything was okay and contained within China. So maybe he believed them. I mean, we don't need to talk more specifically about that, but it just to illustrate that it's an issue. And so give us a sense of like what was happening in October, November in China of 2019. Where do we sit today? So this episode, we're, we're going to be launching it in or releasing it in July of 2020. So we're about halfway through the year. What's this last half year look like? Sure. Yeah. So in when the early months in October and November uh, and December as well, this was there was a disaster in China. There was there was really no oversight. It didn't get put into the right systems, and it was allowed to spread into into January. And this this went on. There was a lot of there's consistent lying on medical data and on transferability transmissibility. Excuse me. Since the beginning, but what happened is once there was a top down measure to, you know, we have to defeat this virus. It became a a political issue, like a major, almost existential political issue to the party, which it was. And what happened is in February and March, they started instituting a massive lockdown, like very, very, you know, tyrannical in a lot of ways. And what they did is they actually massaged the numbers. The The outbreak is much was much, much larger in China than they let on. And they they really smooth things out to pretend like, you know, the deaths and everything were really nice and all the curves are nice and we got under control. They did eventually get it under control. That's something people should be aware of. There's not, it's very unlikely that there is now like a completely rampant, uncontrollable outbreak in China, just because once it became, it's sort of the same way that there's always high GDP growth in China. Once you get a top-down mandate that the Xi Jinping to every local official all the way down that their everyone's job is at stake if there's outbreaks they got massive massive action but it was definitely not under control 
in the way and in the manner that they say it was. And mm-hmm. to this day, the the data that you get out of there is not it's no one relies on it. It's just it's just yeah. not going to be good. Is there a way to get good data? I mean, I know that there's like, you know, for like GDP and unemployment, there's like shadow data. Yeah. Is there a way that the like the United States CIA gets it? Um do you mean data? Just kind of. Do you mean data? Well, I'm just for right saying, now, like, is there a way to, or for like tracking back? And so, do you mean like to see what it was really like in, say, February or March? A lot of that you can do based on some extrapolations of like epidemiological stuff. And as that's gotten better, you could sort of yeah, guess what okay. it might have been. That's probably the best bet. But again, there's not a lot of Western technology and access, and there's not the same yeah, sort of data okay. flows that you get. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What else do we need to know about this whole outbreak as it relates to China? Well, you know, I'll tell you one thing that I've been observing and paying attention to recently is just the the way that this outbreak is actually bringing up some of those regional differences we just talked about, where people in Shanghai say, say they'll be okay so long as they don't go to Beijing. And this sort of thing, you know, in the US, we don't think about it like this, but it's a very big deal in China because they've been trying to create a narrative of shared, of unity, of shared sacrifice, of shared struggle, of shared prosperity forever, well, since the party's been in power. Because they need this propaganda, unified propaganda narrative to really push, like, a, feel like you're pushing a single boat forward. When you start getting things that divide the different regions, based on, I mean, public health is, is such a such a big one. That's that's actually something to people should watch for because fissures mm. in the interrelation of different parts of China is a, a really big deal. I'm, I'm going to try and go into different regions of China more, like on the podcast, to give people a better sense because you can't really you won't see it just in general coverage but this mm-hmm. stuff's very important as it relates to the rest of the world i think it's not it won't be you'll see more xenophobia you'll see a lot of nationalism you'll see a lot of the things that have been brewing for the last couple of years anyway and they'll be they'll get a much harsher edge but i don't think yeah i don't i don't think there's necessarily health problems or anything like that that people should worry about Let's talk a little bit about the future. I mean, China is going to play a different role. I mean, you bring up the manufacturing, for lack of a better word right now, bottleneck that we're experiencing. I mean, you couldn't get a lot of products out of China for earlier part of the year because of this outbreak. And it became a really big problem that they are adapting to. And of course, the world is also adapting to it. And so... What are some things that we can probably look forward to with China? When I say look forward, I don't mean like into with anticipation in a good hmm. way, but just what can we expect and predict to come out of China or to change in our relationship with China and how it basically has you know served the world in its capacity over the last few decades? Yeah, that well, that roles is definitely shifting. It was, I mean, the Trump administration has sort of made it a, a policy to sort of move supply chains out of China. It had some limited success, but now there's a a much broader push. It's coming from Japan, it's coming from Europe, it's coming from a lot of countries, and it's it's for this self-sufficiency in certain key areas. So we started labeling workers essential and non-essential, and a similar thing is happening in different industries and with different supply chains. And I think businesses have also had their perspective of a cost-free and very safe supply global supply chain really, really impacted. So a lot of that is, is really going to sh- change in a fundamental way. Um, the idea that you know you can have a product with a 100 parts shipped from 15 countries that's all assembled in, assembled in China and then sent out is going to be dubious, especially because China nationalized industries during, I believe, February it nationalized or January it nationalized its medical device industry and also 
sort of appropriated foreign output as well, the output of foreign countries, foreign companies based in China. So that's really adjusted the calculus of a lot of a lot of businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also just China's really at the end of its its growth curve. It's really taken all a lot of what it can from the agricultural transition, from a lot of the main drivers of its growth of the last twenty years. And as sort of the capital structure in the West and particularly in Europe and the United States changes, it's going to have to completely retool its system, and that's very unlikely. The most resilient from an economic perspective of, a, of its industries and sectors is, is still exports. And in the trade environment that we're talking about, it's going to be very difficult to maintain the levels of employment and also the levels of hard currency that it got from, from all these exports. So people don't realize that in 2017, China actually started importing, you know, became a net importer. Basically, its current account is red. And that means that that all the 660 plus around cities that it needs to sustain, it gets all of its materials for everything from from outside China. It doesn't have the the capacity to to maintain it and produce it itself, mm-hmm. and that is going to impact. I mean, it's it's finances in a, in a way that we haven't seen. Where China's always seemed like it just has endless money. In a lot of ways, it did because it's the most overcapitalized country in the history of the world, but. It's reaching sort of the, the limits of that, and we're seeing we're gonna, we're, yeah. we're going to see a lot of interesting things. So China also wasn't able to do a massive stimulus the way the U.S. did, which is really shocking. When in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, it did a massive stimulus. It was doing like what Obama did, like every month or something for a period mm, of time. Wow. Yeah, no, it was it was insane. But now the 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 leadership is very aware of what its credit efficiency and its its debt burden is becoming. Right. So. When I think of China, I mentioned to you prior to going on here that there are people that I know that sort of blame you know, the manufacturing, I don't even know what the, how to put it, the crisis of manufacturing in the United States, if, if one wants to see that as, oh, well, we shipped everything to China because it's cheap labor. And, you know, that we, we know we need to bring jobs back to the United States or whatever. And I'm like, well, hang on here. My perspective has been during the last several decades, the Chinese economy has grown, which I think is nobody's in dispute of that. But more importantly, the well-being of millions of people have improved and there's still like a long way to go. So like in my mind, I hear you say, oh, well, they're hitting a plateau or maybe a ceiling or the limits of their growth and things like that. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Can't they just become more productive? Or is that limitation imposed by the Communist Party? That's a really good question. And I think there's a couple things that China would really needs to do. It needs to get a consumer economy. It needs to really develop its consumer base. And then it does need to increase labor productivity. So U.S. workers are about seven times more productive than Chinese workers. Mm-hmm. But one thing people, I guess that might be another myth. We assume that China is just, you know, it's filled with engineers. It's everyone's super educated. In China, there's not even a mandate. You don't have to finish high school. So there's a, a huge proportion, hundreds of millions of Chinese that haven't finished high school. And mm-hmm. we mainly interface with a lot of coastal regions in China, which they dominate all sorts of testing and scores and stuff similar to Japan and South Korea. But you look at the hundreds of millions of people in the rest of China, and it's very different. I think people should consider, you know, a lot of manufacturing in the U.S. did really su- did suffer, but it did move hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It's a very hard, when you really look at it, it's, it's a really hard thing to really make the yeah the moral judgment. It, it is tough, 
But I think for people if, who look at the 1990s and think everything went to, if everything just fell apart in the 1990s with manufacturing, then the way to think about it is that we built up a system starting in the 1940s that had a strategic purpose. And that once that strategic purpose ended in the night with the fall of the Soviet Union, we had a, a system that ran on autopilot and companies, everyone was doing really well. Companies were doing well. A lot of countries were joining. A lot of countries were developing. And then China was just the country that happened to have the most pieces in the right place to mm -hmm. develop at, at the scale that we saw. Okay. So again, man, I just, I just want to keep picking your brain here, but we're, we're yeah. out of time. And, uh, I want to point people to your podcast and I'm looking forward to your next episodes. So tell us a little bit more about how we can get in touch with you online or just find you online. Does your upcoming book have a title yet? When can we look forward to that? Or just give us any, any indication on where we can find you online. Sure. Yeah. So there's the website has uh, this is where a lot of the podcast materials and stuff are stored. There's it's www.jasonsheftel.com. And so you can find some stuff there. You can find me on Twitter, which I use, use a little bit, but I'm enjoying it. So I'm at Jason Scheftel on Twitter. I also do a sort of a bonus episode for the podcast on, on Patreon, where it's, it's much more informal. It goes a bit longer. Uh, so the other ones are sort of 20 minutes to be really digestible, but you can go get more yeah. content that goes in depth there. There's going to be some more videos and stuff probably on YouTube, which is going to be pretty exciting. And I think the book, yeah, the book, I'll, I think we'll just call it China Unraveled right now for for as well. But yeah, it's looking okay. it's looking like the end of the year, uh, and I'll let people you know I'll have a bit more for that coming out. Yeah. And I think that's that's about it. I, and I guess the next episodes people should look forward to is about Hong Kong, where it goes you know it goes back to when Hong Kong had nothing, and it's a two parts first of a two part series, and it's going to really give people the framework to look at the broad trends about the way things may go because there's a lot of yeah. finance people trying to tell you what's happening and you know it's, it hasn't been the best in the last couple of years yeah okay well jason i really appreciate you coming on and maybe we can have you on in the future to talk uh, a little bit more about a number of things maybe they'll hopefully there won't be such something like a pandemic from china that you know means we have to talk again and hopefully we can just analyze it <laughs> for its own sake but uh thank you for for joining us for the podcast I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calledtofreedombook.com.